come out of the chute, come out running. You gotta make your own success. Luck has nothing to do with it. Get off your high horse, get off your pity party. Just so you know, someone out there right now in your same market's killing it. Is it gonna be you or is it gonna be someone else? Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm excited to bring you a very special guest today called Jeremy Sizemore. Jeremy is one of the leading IT executive recruiters in North America and has been for the last 20 years. His career took off like a rocket when at the age of 23, he was named Rookie of the Year with MRI. That was in 2000. And uh, in the six and a half years he was with MRI, he billed millions of dollars. Uh, over his career, Jeremy's billed over four, $14 million in personal production, and he's placed IT executives, cybersecurity talent, uh, all the way up to CIO, CTO, uh, CISO levels, and across all areas of emerging technologies. ASAP Talent has 75 Fortune 500 clients throughout North America, as well as internationally in Singapore, Germany, and even over here in the UK. So, Jeremy, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. Looking forward to it. All right. Awesome. So you were introduced to me by our mutual friend, Rich Rosen. How do you know Rich? Well, Rich is in the Pinnacle Society with me. And, you know, that's a group of uh, probably 75 to 80 uh, great recruiters. And uh, he's one of my good buddies. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, I'm glad he's, uh, he's introduced to us. Listen, uh, You've got so many areas we could talk about. We could talk about business development, winning retainers, um, building a brand, running a team. Uh, but what I'm really interested in is how, like, what do you think made you such a natural at recruitment? Because I know I was a sort of late bloomer. I, I got into the business. I wasn't that good at it. I worked super hard and, um, you know, I, but, but it was only average. I was, I was in a firm of 200 people, uh, kind of middle of the leaderboard. I absolutely wanted to get to the top. So I had that drive, but, um, that's how, that's how I got into coaching actually. Cause I hired a coach to work with me and that guy helped me to double my billings in 90 days. And then I started climbing the leaderboard and got up, but even at my, the, my best, I was in the top sort of 15% of the, of the organization. I was number one in my team out of eight people, but um, it sounds like you just seem to click with this business right from the get go. Can you tell me a bit about why that is? Yeah. Um, I think it kind of goes back to um, just kind of who I was coming out of school and coming out of college. Um, I was in uh, collegiate athletics. Uh, was a, I was a springboard and platform diver at the University of Missouri. And so I was highly competitive. That, that's one thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was just built into who I was. It was baked in, right, to my DNA and my personality. Um, I think a lot of us have a natural personality style, right? Mm -hmm. And mine was the classic recruiter profile in terms of uh, being a very extroverted personality type. Mm -hmm. um, probably, you know, high confidence, um, being in competition, right? And uh, competing. Um, one of the things that was interesting is I know some recruiters are very money motivated. Um, I wasn't, um, I, but I was competition motivated, right? Like when I would see rankings or just, you know, just want to be the best. And so it was more of a competitive drive part. And, um, and then at being at such a young age in 2001, when I got started in the business, it was really 97% on the phone. Uh, the model that I was in was Management Recruiters International, and it was an office in St. Louis, Missouri, mm -hmm. uh, three, four hours from Chicago. And I was in the Midwest market and they just said, hey, we want you to have a, be a general IT recruiter for St. Louis. And it was a full desk model where I had to do business development and recruiting. So I had to do both. And here I am, 23, getting started, didn't know anything about search. And um, I just didn't know what I didn't know. So I sat down and watched some MRI video-based trainings. And like on day three, they're like, here's a phone, get going, right? 
And so I did, I just did what they told me to do. And, um, I will say that I didn't have any qualms about calling people that had, uh, titles that were director level or VP level or C level. And I just got on the phone and I went. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people are a little bit intimidated by that. They get, um, they have paralysis by over analysis or, you know, it's a fear of should I call that person or not? And um, in those days in MRI, it's like you had 90 days to make your first deal. So you better be getting fee agreements within 30 to 45 days. And they they measured, you know, do you have 80 to 100 plus calls a day? And are you on the phone four hours? Right. So it's like, here I am in the frying pan, day one. And I just went, you know, and, um, you know, I was able to, you know, just get going really quickly. I guess it did come naturally to me at that point. Uh, but I will say I didn't focus on how many calls do I have or what's my connect time. I literally just shortened my time between calls. I tried to get into real conversations that was going to lead to a, a real hiring authority that had a real need and, um, and then go out and find really good people, become a matchmaker. Uh, the business isn't rocket science. Um, candidates and clients, candidates and in positions, and then just match them up in the marketplace. And so I just did that as much as I could and loaded my pipeline and never looked back. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so listen, I'd love to get into the business development in, in just a minute. But first, like, where do you think that confidence came from at, at 23? Like, what, what was that based on? Well, um, uh, some people fall into recruiting or it finds them or they weren't even that much aware of it. And then they just go to talk to some recruiter. Next thing you know, they're working for a recruiting firm. Yeah. I, I, so I was recruited, you know, as a college athlete. And so I was aware of just something being called recruitment. Right. And, um, I came out of college with a sociology and a psychology degree. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold to me, in the United States anyway, nobody's looking to hire a psychology major. Like <laughs> yeah, no, no one. Maybe that's philosophy. Same. Yeah, okay. So maybe it's the same in the UK. So I get this bachelor's degree and it's like, unless you're going to become a professor of sociology and get your, your PhD, yeah. and unless you're going to go into law school or get your master's degree or your MBA or something, it's, I didn't realize that, but nobody is hiring a sociology psychology major. And so um, I, I purposefully uh, sought out a job at the beginning that was around um, helping people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like social inequality, you know, it's kind of tied into my degree. Well, I, I was hired um, to help people with disabilities find jobs. I was a job person, right? I would help them with their resume, help them with interview prep, but I was actually reaching out to companies on their behalf to help them set the interview up, to navigate the interview process, to help them get onboarded. But I was doing it in a nonprofit scenario, Mm -hmm. right? And I was married and it was like, about two years into that, I was like, I need to make more than just $50 every time I help get someone hired. And I got 50 bucks for retention if they were there for 90 days. And I got another 50 if they were there for 180. So here I am, I'm making like 25 grand a year. And I I was doing really well with it, by the way. I mean, I had all these major corporations that were involved in a business advisory council for this nonprofit. I'm talking Anheuser-Busch, Monsanto, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Blue Cross Blue Shield, all these big companies in, in the U.S. market. And um, so I was killing it. And so I had this false sense of security that I already knew how to do business development. I was already working with all these vice president level people at these companies, but I was doing it in a nonprofit world. Mm-hmm. I specifically went to get into executive recruiting. I, I sought it out. And I was specifically seeking out a model that was low base salary with high commissions. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people don't, I don't think, have the, um, the fortitude to purposely go after a high commission role, but I did. And I was in my low 20s with no kids. And um, so I, I actually took a cut on my salary. I went from like 28000 back in those days. I took a $12,000 base salary to join MRI. Wow. And, um, but I was able to get 40% commission. Brilliant. You know? 
Yeah. I mean, I went from like 30 K to like 130 K in one year. I was like, what just happened? I mean, I'm pinching myself thinking, is this business even legal? I can't believe what happened. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I, I remember my first uh, job in recruiting was 1997. My basic salary was 10 and a half thousand pounds, which is about $14,000 or something like that. That's similar to mine. Yeah, Yeah, I love it. Exactly. So, um, really interesting. Thanks for for that (laughs) that, uh, context. Let's talk about business development. Like, what is your approach to business development and how has it evolved? Because, you know, over the last 20 years since you've been doing this. Yeah, I'll tell you. So, I'm going to start back in the early days because this is part of that same story we were telling. Um, I... I was taught to call people, uh, if you can, at the highest levels and work down. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. in my space, being IT, I would try to find out who the chief information officer is, who's the vice president of IT, mm-hmm. who's the director of IT, director of enterprise apps, director of infrastructure. You get to know the space that you're in and what those titles are and what the language of your space is. But I would start at the top and go down. And back in those days, it was phone. And back then, some people would answer the phone. Um, And so we'd get on the phone. We'd get some live calls. We were good at leaving voicemails and um, in a way that people would call you back. I was taught to go to market with an actual strong candidate. Yeah. So I would do that. And and, and we call that an MPC, most placeable candidate. So I was taking real people to market that I felt were highly placeable. And um, I also did research on, did I know about existing openings that were hard to fill? Mm -hmm. I intentionally, um, I understood supply and demand, Mm -hmm. and I would intentionally go into what I knew were hard to fill roles, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, To me, that's where they're willing to use a search firm and pay a fee. Uh, They need us on hard to fill roles, not easy to fill roles. Right. And usually they get paid more and the fees higher. And so uh, that's just, that's that was my model, um, and uh, and then it was a mixture of volume also. So you know, let's get in there and pound the phones and make lots of calls. And um, even back then, I would also email people. So I would call them and email them. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it's evolved if I, is I've learned what works and what doesn't. Um, I've you know kind of like an angler or a fisherman you look at what kind of bait that you're using and are the fish biting or not. And if they're not, then you change your bait. Well, what I realized over time was, so I would still start at the top and go down, but I would also go across the organization. So I always start in IT department, top down, but I would also go with the chief HR officer, VP of HR, director of town acquisition and hit both sides. Then after I would leave them all voicemails, about this candidate or about who I am and their need or whatever it is, but I would follow it up with an email. Mm -hmm. Now, my style is to email them all at the same time. I purposely email the C-level and VP level on the IT side, but I CC all those HR and talent acquisition folks, and they don't know me yet, cold call situation, Mm -hmm. and uh, my voice, my tagline is usually regarding the voicemail that I just left for you. So curiosity kills the cat, as they say. Um, I wanted to create curiosity, and my style is they need to hear the voicemail and or they need to open your email. If they don't open it and they delete it before even seeing it, you've accomplished nothing. The other thing is I want to elicit a response, good or bad. I don't care. I do not want to be ignored. Like I want a response one way or the other. This style does that. Um, for people that aren't getting responses, if you will start at the top, go down and across so that you're hitting six to eight people inside that target company, and then you email them, uh, email the highest levels and CC the other ones, which might be director level also, like director of town acquisition. What happens is the director of town acquisition is territorial, usually. Yeah. They, um, they're kind of caught in a situation where the C-suite and the VP levels are seeing them get included on the message. So you're not going around them, you're including them, mm-hmm. but it elicits a response because they want to take over. They, they want to, oh, don't be contacting my CIO. Don't be contacting my VP of IT. So number one, that happens. Mm-hmm. Number two, 
oftentimes the C level or the VP level will do a reply all and say, and, and say, Hey, I want you to talk to Jeremy at ASAP talent or, Hey, um, this candidate looks very promising. And, and, and so when it comes as a directive from the C suite, Mm-hmm. They jump, they move. It helps negotiations. All of a sudden, it's easier to get a better fee. All of a sudden, it's easier to um, maybe get a better relationship model. Um, so, anyway, that's a little mm-hmm. bit around how things I think have evolved for us. Mm-hmm. Also, back then, it was all outbound. Yeah. We are a lot more mature in digital marketing, branding. SEO strategy, and we are getting about 10 to 15 clients a year that just find us and call us. Well, that was never happening in the first, in the first five years of my business. That was really never happening. Awesome. All right. This is interesting. We'll circle back to digital marketing. That's something I'm passionate about as well. So we can geek out on that in a few minutes. But first, um, I'm really interested in this strategy where you, by the way, did you see the movie Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith? yeah. Yeah. I love that movie. Great. Yeah. About It's a true story based on a guy called Chris Gardner who went from homeless to a stockbroker. And um, as you were talking, it reminded me of part of that film where he starts with a CEO and he's like focused on just getting as many of these calls in as possible in a short space of time. And it was a similar uh, mindset. But what I'm curious about is um, involving the talent folks from the outset and then they come back, as you say, they're territorial and they're saying, you know, you deal with me, don't be speaking to the CIO, you know, from now on. How do you navigate that? Because I feel like I want to avoid that situation. I want to keep the conversation going with the C-suite as well. And I feel like uh, you can get into a position where the, the talent folks or the HR folks are trying to prevent you from doing that. So what, how do you navigate that whole minefield? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, there's a lot of preconceived, I think, incorrect assumptions that recruiters sometimes have. And then some of it's also true. Mm-hmm. So for me, I've found that, and, I, and I'm mostly hitting huge companies, yeah. like $10 billion global companies in every, every industry vertical. So we, we have automotive clients, financial service clients. We have food, CPG and food and beverage, pharma, medical device, energy utility, oil and gas. Like we are literally across the spectrum because we're focused in uh, ERP, SAP, which is ERP software. Yep. And then we're yep. focused in cybersecurity and, and that's across industry. Um, so misperceptions and assumptions. Um, uh, you can't really get a hold of a VP or a C-suite person in Fortune 500. Well, we found that they're not getting called as much by our competitors. And it's actually, you will trip occasionally over people that are used to working directly with executive search partners. They aren't getting called as much. And some of them are extremely friendly. Yeah. Um, Some of them know the value of executive search Mm -hmm. and almost all of them have been placed by talented recruiters multiple times in their career. Whereas when you're calling people in cube land, uh, cubicle land, right, yeah. that are um, next to other people, then they feel like, I can't talk right now. This recruiter shouldn't be calling me at work. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to get fired if someone finds out about this. You call the higher levels, they have their own office, they shut the door and they have a conversation with you. And so that, that absolutely does happen. Now, there are companies where they, they, they're very territorial, HR and recruitment. And there are companies where it's like, don't talk to the C-suite or don't talk to the VP level. That definitely happens also. Mm-hmm. Um, when it does, um, I, I always want to remind recruiters that when, when, when we are not an existing partner with a new company we're going after, there are no ground rules. How, on the very beginning, how can you really get in trouble for something? Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, you don't know how it works and neither do they. And so what I tell the company in that situation, what I tell talent acquisition is I'll say, oh, oh, okay, sorry. You know, the other companies that we work with, we have strong relationships with C-suite. First of all, you want to set the tone Mm -hmm. of how your company does business, Mm -hmm. right? So getting really good at transitional statements is something that 
um, account executives and recruiters need to be better at. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the um, challenges that come our way are very predictable. Yep. Like the yep. same, the same 20 challenges, whether it's a uh, HR or talent acquisition person talking to us or whether it's a hiring authority talking to us, it's really the same 15 to 20 things over and over and over again. And that's one of them that you're talking about, right? And so, look, uh, Mr. Hiring Authority or look, uh, Director of Talent Acquisition, the clients that we work with view us as a very strong partner. We're not in very many vendor models. Um, we do, a, we do um, about 40 to 50% of our work is retained and exclusive. And we work at all levels. So we do VP and C level search, but we also do director and manager. We are not purely executive retained. We do all levels within SAP, uh, but we have super strong partnerships with the C-suite. And when we do intake calls, we love to be collaborative and be a strong partner with talent acquisition, but we also, to be successful, have strong partnerships with the actual hiring authorities so that we can better understand the need and the culture fit. Um, If that's not the model that you work in, honestly, this may not be the best partnership. And so that's where we're at. I I didn't talk like that in my first three years because I just wanted to get every fee agreement I could. Mm -hmm. But I think you evolve a little bit more over time. And what you find out is that the language we use and the way we set up early partnerships and the, the having confidence without being overly arrogant, but having that level of confidence to say, this is how we are most successful. Um, You get put in a bucket real fast. Are you going to be in the contingency vendor bucket or are you going to be in the, Oh, these guys are different. They're highly specialized. They have strong partnerships bucket because a lot of companies use firms from both buckets. Mm. It's really a matter of which one do you want to be in? Right. That's a good insight right there. I love that. Um, I hadn't quite thought of it that way before. Um, so the first of all, thank you for that verbiage. That was really nice. And I love the part where you're, where you're almost taking away your service a little bit and saying, look, if, if you're not open to that way of working, then maybe this isn't going to be a good partnership for both of us. Uh, Cause it lets them know you're not desperate to, for their business um, and that you're not willing to, you know, bow and scrape in order to, you know, get an opportunity. I think you have to be refreshingly honest with clients, right? And HR and town acquisition, they don't expect a firm to talk like that. But I will tell you, it sends subliminal messages to them. Mm. It sends the message that we're not desperate. Yes. Oh, oh, they must be a very good firm. Um, It helps with your negotiations when it comes down to numbers. And whether you are going to get some skin in the game, maybe a financially committed search versus contingency. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they have a real need, if they're in real pain, and if you had a really good uh, MPC candidate, if the VP or C-level said, hey, we really want to talk to that person, those are a lot of ifs. But in those scenarios, you have a lot more negotiating power than you think you do. Excellent. I love it. What, what did you mean when you said a few minutes ago about transitional statements? Okay. So when, when I do training or talk to my own team, I talk about transitional statements in a lot of different ways. And um, I put some frameworks in place that help uh, people out in recruitment. Um, but one of them is if I will you. Um, it's called the if I will you. Um, some people call it a close or mm-hmm. I call it phraseology. Um, And it can be used with candidates, it can be used with clients, and it can be used in a variety of scenarios. And so, like when a a firm says, what's your fee agreement? Especially in the first two minutes of a conversation. Right. You need to have a transitional statement because, to me, you should not talk about fee at that point. Agree, 100%. Yeah. So transitional. And and once you know your transitional statements, you'll use them over and over and over again. And and you can get really good with them. Um, But so that transitional statement for me is, um, look, uh, we'd love to talk about fee. In fact, we work in more than one way when it comes to how we set up our partnership. But in order to talk about what type of financial agreement would work, I need to ask you a couple of questions first. Would you be okay if I ask you some questions, have a little bit of dialogue, and then at the back end that I propose two or three different financial options on how to work? So that would be an example of a transitional statement. And we use them in a lot of things. They say, well, let's say that you're at the end of the conversation and the client says, uh, look, we only work on contingency and we only work at 15%. Right. 
you know, state something low, uh, something yeah. crazy, right? And uh, you could use an if we could use an if I will you uh, statement. And and in that in that example, I might say, and especially when I train other people, they might know I'm the president of the company. But if I'm training recruiters, I always say, act like it, act like you're not the decision maker. And so say, if I could get to 15 to 20%, which I really don't know if we can, um, all of this stuff we're working on right now is all higher than that. But if I could, would you be willing to go exclusive and retained? Mm. And then just be quiet. Um, Always, if you're going to give something up, get something else back um, of equal value in return. And, um, and so that's a good example. Like if we like to work at 25 or 30% and they'll say that they say 20 or they say 22, I say, look, I don't even have the authority to, you know, to go that low, go that low, make Mm -hmm. sure they know that that's low. Mm -hmm. But if I could, would you be willing to give us a $10,000 retainer and go exclusive? Uh, I can at least take something like that to my boss and see if, if maybe they would clear it. I really don't know. But if, you know, and so if I, will you, uh, when they say, Hey, send me a fee agreement. And, and it's a situation where a lot of times recruiters send those off and then they never get them back. They don't yes. get signed and say, if I, if I send you the fee agreement, uh, would you be willing to get it signed and back over to me tomorrow? Could we go ahead and schedule a call to go back over any concerns you might have and discuss how to, you know, so close for action. Um, but those, if I will use statements, I mean, once you know that framework, you can use it with your kids, your spouse, use it with, Jeremy, there's no way I'm going to, my, my wife already says to me on a regular basis, two things, Mark, don't try and coach me. Right. When I start getting into that kind of territory with my, my questioning or, or whatever. And, and Mark, don't try and close me, right? Yeah, don't don't use things. your business techniques on me, exactly, buddy. <laughs> exactly. And I do it without, it's not like I'm trying to, it's just yeah. it hardwired now into my brain. So yeah, right on. Yeah, that's funny. Okay, awesome. Jeremy, you've already earned your, uh, <laughs> you know, earned your spot here with that little bit of training. Thank you for that. It was beautiful. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999-2000 when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. So in terms of the business development now, is it still you look for hard to fill openings, use MPCs? Um, are those the kind of cornerstones or is there any other um, strategies that you guys are finding? Well, I mean, I think there's certainly more to it than that. I mean, in the early days of recruiting, there was a lot of general recruiters in the marketplace yes. and there still are some generalized recruiters. It amazes me. Um, but I just see way too much value in, in niche specialization. Yes. Definitely. And, um, that was one of the things in my rookie year, I had billed maybe like three twenty in Oh one. And I met someone and I was solo and I met someone that was billing 1.3 million with a team of four. Mm-hmm. And he became a very good friend of mine. I met him at a national uh, sales retreat that I had earned, you know, one of those sales retreats at MRI that you earn. Well, he goes, Hey, what do you do? And I was like, I, I'm an IT recruiter. I happen to be talking to the top SAP recruiter in the world that I know of at that time. <laughs> and so he was IT, but he was specialized. And he goes, man, if there's one piece of advice I can give you, it's uh, specialization. He goes, you need to go back in and get much more narrow and focus. 
He talked about recyclability of candidates. Yes. Um, he talked about um, becoming a true expert in your space where mm-hmm. the, the amount of jargon and terminology that, that we have in IT is crazy. It's ridiculous. And so he talked about being able to become a true expert in terms of how you talk with clients and candidates and how it sets you apart. So I did that. I mean, and so that, that year, I mean, I think I increased like from 320 to 450 literally in one year just from doing that. And that was part of the main reason why for seven years we were able to go up, 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 up. Uh, we also built a team concept, started adding some bandwidth and um, all those things were all true. But it, the first thing that changed was specialization and that recyclability of candidate part for people that haven't specialized yet allowed us to complete a search, finish all the recruiting and have a short list in three to five days. When in those days it was taking our competitors two weeks to do a search. Yes. And so we were able to, so if you talk about, man, how can some people do three to four to five placements a month when someone else can only do one or two a month? Well, that was one of the key light, uh, light bulb moments, the epiphany moment that said, I feel like I'm working super hard and I build this. How come that guy over there is billing that? Right, well, right. that was one of the things. And, um, and so that comes into play. And, and obviously, there's, there's probably even more. But that's one of the things I think that was a, a huge kind of early thing in my, my career that made a big difference. Yeah. Jeremy, that's awesome. I, I, uh, I agree 100% on the power of having a niche and really specializing for all the reasons you just said, to what extent is the phone still part of your BD process? Cause it's interesting how many different ways there are of doing this business. And, you know, talk to someone like Rich Rosen and he's still old school, really believes in cranking out, you know, 50 calls a day. Whereas a lot of recruiters have moved completely away from that and are really trying to focus more on warm calling, you know, setting up intros through LinkedIn and following up and that sort of stuff. How, uh, what's the sort of a blend at, uh, at ASAP? That's a great question. Um, first of all, I do think there's probably more than one way to be successful. Mm-hmm. I do think that different people have different strengths and weaknesses in terms of how they market. Yep. But what works in a great market, great economy, isn't always the same thing that works in a tougher economy. True. And, you know, so when you talk to people that have been in business for 20 plus years or 30 years that have been through multiple downturns and upturns, Mm -hmm. you will, I think, find that most of them will tell you the gloves got to come off in a market like what we're in in this COVID economy. The gloves got to come off. You got to do things differently. And it does, for me, mean more proactive reach outs. Um, the percentage of your day that is marketing versus recruitment, mm-hmm. for some people in a good market, it's 50-50. For some people in a great market, it becomes 80-20, meaning that 80% becomes recruitment because they got so many good searches and clients. Yes. And, 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 they, and then some people, unfortunately, even go to zero on marketing. Right. Which, that's the big mistake, right? Big mistake. Ouch, yeah. ouch, ouch. But they'll still do it. You, I mean, mark my words. You get someone with 20 to 30 search. Oh, I got more business I can handle. I better just stop. What they're not realizing is what they think of as an A client or A opportunity. I love to talk about that with recruiters. I say, what do you think is an A client? And they'll, they'll give you your definition. Say, well, you know, it means that I get to work directly with the hiring authority. They work with me exclusively. Um, you know, whatever it is, the fee mm-hmm. agreement's awesome. You know, and so they describe an A client. I say, man, that, that does sound like a pretty darn good client. I'll say, what's their brand in the marketplace on a one to 10 scale? Well, their brand's a seven. Oh, it's not a 10. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So it could be better. And they'll say, well, you said it was a good fee. What, what is it? And then they'll say, they go, well, it's a 25% fee. Those are hard to get. It's a good fee. And I say, well, you know, there are some clients out there that pay even 30, 33%. Did you know that? Um, well, yeah, but this client, you know, they pay on time and they pay early. It's all great. And say, well, and, and you're exclusive. And let's even say you're retained. Um, but the brand of the company, the, who the company is, that's a big deal because Working with great organizations is so much easier to get top talent and to make placements. That's true. I'll say 
on the different hiring authorities you work with, how great are they at selling their own opportunity? You know, and I'll tell them, you know, no matter how good of a recruiter you are at selling the opportunity for clients that you don't even work inside their walls, no matter how good you are, some of the hiring authorities aren't great at selling their own opportunity and others are. And when you work with hiring authorities that are awesome at selling their own opportunity on retained with 30 to 33% fees, are you working with clients that think of you mostly for manager level searches or are you working with clients that even think of you for their VP and C-level searches? Have they used you on a board of director search yet? And my point is, are, and are they in a, uh, what's the location? Is it a major city that's easy to find talent? Or are they in a mid-market or even a middle of nowhere that's super hard to place? Mm-hmm. And my point is that you never stop business development. Because, and, and you think of the, the term or the concept of top grading. Top grading for an organization in, in with their people that they hire. Well, what about us top grading our clients who we think is an A client right now? If we had even better clients, all of a sudden your A's become your B's. And I'm not even saying you would fire those companies, but it, you can restack rank clients. If you continue to never stop doing business development, always getting new ones, there's another client out there that's even better than any client you have right now. And, and the people that get that, get that. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing is the number of great clients you have. Um, having one or two is not enough. When 70 to 80% of your business is locked up into two to three clients, that's a dangerous place to be. Oh, yes. Yes. And they can dictate terms. It's one person can come in into that organization and change everything. Uh, and an economy can change. All kinds of things can change. And so the people that never stop are always the ones that have more consistency in this business. Awesome. Yep. I can relate to every single one of the things you you said there. And I love the idea of top grading your clients. So that's uh, that's a yeah, good Yeah, and one. I don't know if I hit the original question. I kind of well, made so, it. Well, <laughs> you didn't actually, but the original question, thanks for reminding me. The original question was, um, at what point do you guys pick up the phone? And you said the gloves right. need to come off, right? Which right. Uh, right now, everybody should be picking up the phone. But what's the sort of sequence or the cadence of uh, contact? Like, is it email first, then a call? Or like, what, what is your ideal sequence? Yeah, yeah. So, look, we, I believe in a table is as strong as its base. And would you rather have a table with three legs or two legs or four legs, or even six legs, right? Like the more legs you put on the foundation of a table, yeah. then the more stability that it has. Yeah. Um, and if you will build your business and your desk on a similar model, you're going to be stronger for it, right? So we believe in having a great brand presence. That's the digital marketing part. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a content and thought leader, right? Mm-hmm. So putting content out and it creates top of mind awareness, and that creates inbound calls, which is great. That's a leg. It's a leg to put some energy into your SEO strategy, those kind of things. Those are things we're doing in 2020 that I was not doing in 03 or 05, right? That, but think of it as a leg. And, and the way that I train today is to try to convince people that if you put too much time and energy into only one leg, it's kind of dangerous for your business or it could be better. It could be better. And so look, taking great candidates to market absolutely still works, still works. Um, I will tell people that if you don't have lots of great searches or even if you have kind of bad searches on your desk, like bad JOs, I firmly believe that it's better to do business development a hundred percent than to work on bad searches. Yes. That's, that's just me. I yeah. do know that people will work bad searches because the lie that they tell themselves. Right. That, well, it's the best thing I got right now. Exactly. They're kidding themselves. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush is the mind, mindset, right? Well, it's right. But the reality is you're just fooling yourself because the odds of you being successful on that search are, are low and you're just wasting time that you could be applying more productive. I think you have higher probability to take a really, really, really strong candidate to market. You mm-hmm. have a higher probability to get an interview and a higher probability to make a placement. And you have a higher probability to get alternate search assignments, yeah. right? Yeah. Which, you know, in the early days when people were taught all these basics, these are fundamentals of our business. 
But you know what? They're fundamentals that all of us get away from at times. Yes, all yes. of us. All of us make mistakes. All of us get sloppy. So ongoing education, you know, listening to you know, content like what you're putting out. But that ongoing education is so important because it reminds you of what you don't know and it reminds you of what you know but aren't actually doing. <laughs> right. Like we know, we know so much that we aren't doing. We know it. Um, but reminding yourself that I got to take candidates to market. Um, I've, I need to start at the top and work down and go across. I need to be a little bit more um, deliberative and intentional about how I go to market. I need to still create some content. I need to have a digital presence. I need to have a good website. Um, all those things are all true. Um, getting back to multiple forms of communication because you don't know how – you know, one of the things I'll talk about with folks is you don't know how they're going to best respond, right? So <laughs> I take the kind of scorched earth approach. So I call first, top priority, make a phone call. Okay. The reason to me that's the most important is you might catch them live. You can leave a great voicemail, but when you send the email, it helps me to have a better subject line. Because when you say regarding the voicemail that I just left for yes. you, yes. It creates, people are like, what the heck? What is that? Oh, this, this person. So it helps to make sure they listen to it. Yes. And it helps to make sure that they open the email, right? And then it creates, and then I do that deal where I was talking about where I hit multiple people all at once on the email. It creates, it elicits that response, mm -hmm. right? Um, but today I look at different KPIs than I used to. Um, we look at number of scheduled calls, Mm. I wasn't even thinking about scheduled calls, uh, even 10 years ago. Yeah. I just kind of thought, hit the phones, hit the phones, hit the phones. Well, we love to have six to eight scheduled calls in a day. And most of the scheduled calls are 30 minutes or longer. Great. Scheduled calls can be interview prep. Mm -hmm. It can be talking to a candidate about a new opportunity, but you already know they're interested, probably from your email blast or your LinkedIn in mail, whatever. But it's a scheduled call. We know they want to talk to us. Scheduled calls with hiring authorities, interview preps, interview debriefs, closing calls, doesn't matter. I want eight to 10 a day. And most of those are all going to end up being 30 minutes or longer. I mean, if volume versus quantity has been an age old thing in our business, you know, because are you a, are you a kind of a, a quality or a quantity person? And I've mostly been a quality person. Uh, the number of calls that I usually make is, you know, 40 to 60 in a day or 40 to 50. It's not 80 to 120. Uh, there's days when it's like 30 or 32. It's Honestly, funny, Jeremy, yeah. that the thing is there's some people who, listening who for, for them, 30 is a high volume. True. And True. for you, you're saying that's a, that's a quality, that's a low volume. Well, and there, there can be times when it's 15. Uh, the more scheduled calls you have, the yeah, lower the number's going to be. You still only, I have three kids. I'm married. Yeah, me too. I do other things. I'm still only going to have eight to nine hours in a day, eight to 10, whatever you are. I'm not a crazy workaholic, mm -hmm. but how do you manage the eight hours you do have? Yeah. Tunnel focus. I block my time. Um, I come to the market in an intentional way. Mm -hmm. And then if you have more scheduled calls, you're probably going to have lower number of calls. But- all of a sudden you look up, your day's gone. You've been on the phone the whole day um, and your connect time's usually high. Um, that's the type of person I was. But I have seen people that bill really high that are volume people. And so both can be good. When I become really concerned with folks that I'm coaching, it's when both of those numbers are low. Mm, when, you, right. when you don't have volume or quality and your connect time is like under an hour and a half and you don't have very many scheduled calls and you don't have very many number of calls, then almost every time you peel the, the onion back, you look under the hood, if you will, and then they don't have very many fee agreements, they don't have very many searches, they don't have very many candidates currently interviewing, and these are all the KPIs that predict success. Yes. You know, you can really predict whether someone's probably gonna make a placement in the next 30 days or they're probably not. Yeah, I agree. I agree 100%. So, um, thanks for that, Jeremy. That's brilliant. Let's talk a little more about digital marketing because it's something that's come up uh, again and again uh, over the last uh, 30 or however many minutes we've been talking. Um, what are the most, because here's the thing, there's so many things you could do, right? There's so many different ways of marketing your business and 
the challenge, especially if someone either has a small boutique or they're a one one man band is, you know, solo practitioner is there's only so many hours in the day. So you can't spread yourself too thin. If, if uh, someone came to Jeremy and said, look, I, I know I need to do more to position myself in the market, to build my brand, to be perceived as an authority, to, um, you know, put content out there. What would you tell them to get started? Like the, the most important, like, let's say top three things they should spend a little bit of their time doing. Yeah, I have three to four and I am the person you described. I'm the low budget guy that doesn't want to spend 30 grand a year on digital marketing or media or SEO. Um, I'm the guy that's a little bit self-taught and Mm -hmm. I'm the guy that I don't want to be consumed with doing nothing but writing articles. I don't want to be consumed with internet surfing or, you know, any of those things. Like what activities can we focus on that, that produce the most revenue for us? And and what do I want to take on myself versus what do I want to outsource? So all of those things are all good, good tangential, you know, potential conversations. But I'm going to focus on what would I tell that person? Number one, the best bang for buck for me that, and I try to do it once a quarter. So it'll take me two hours, maybe three to do this, but I would only do it once a quarter. It's not a daily thing. It's not a weekly thing. It's not even a monthly thing. Once a quarter, write a press release. Whether you want to get a ghostwriter, have someone else in your organization do it, or whether you want to do it, but we do, we write a press release and we find a good reason to write it. It could be about a placement we made. It could be about a new service offering. It could be some commentary on the economy, the marketplace, unemployment, whatever it is. But we, what we do with that um, press release is it's all about SEO, all about SEO. Mm, we'll think we'll think of the top 10 to 20 phrases that we want to be found if a potential hiring authority was searching that phrase. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's SAP recruiting firm, SAP executive firm, cybersecurity headhunter, um, you know, and use different words. You could use staffing versus search firm or uh, talent acquisition uh, versus, you know, whatever, or contract staffing versus uh, search, uh, the word uh, placement. Uh, some, some people use the word agency, right? So we do 20 different phrases. Uh, it almost always has the word SAP or cybersecurity in it, but we change the phraseology on executive search, recruitment firm, talent acquisition firm, uh, staffing agency. You don't know what word who's going to use. But it always for us has SAP and cybersecurity. We'll mix in geographies like North America, United States, whatever, international search, um, whatever. And even at some point, we wanted to increase our SEO around certain service offerings like board of director search. Mm -hmm. We wanted to do more board of director searches. Mm -hmm. So we did a press release about how... um, we placed a board of director search. And so whatever phrases that you're trying to become more known for, you want to build those into your press release. It cost about 250 bucks to use a press release distribution company to distribute your press release. We use PR web, oh, prweb.com. Yeah, there's two or three top ones in the world. PR web's one of them. Uh, there's other ones out there as well, but yeah, for 250 to 300 bucks, those phrases that you sprinkle in, um, especially the ones that you put toward the top and in the first paragraph or two, and in, in your, um, your heading, which is kind of like the title of your press release, those carry more weight, but you will find that within one week on Google, that those key phrases will be on page one Mm. because of that press release. And Press releases I wrote three and four years ago are still live on the internet. They have links back and forth to your website. So they have um, uh, those links help your SEO. Yeah. I'm self-taught on all this, but for a low bang for buck, we were able to be, we've always been page one for SAP recruiting firm, SAP executive search firm, all these things. And it's because of, in my opinion, that's one of the top things. Having a good website, having the right URLs, using the right words, all that's all key. Um, but the press releases. Number two, uh, we, we create um, social media graphics with mm-hmm. Canva. 
Canva is super easy to use. Uh, Canva.com to create like these little, to create some imagery that goes with your job link. So we'll post our job on our website. We have an indeed budget that feeds into that. We'll create a graphic for that job and then it'll have a link with it. But that social media graphic, if, if you use those on your LinkedIn posts about your jobs, Mm -hmm. you get a far higher engagement and, yep. it, and yep. more people see it. Um, so mm-hmm. using a good social media graphic and creating some content that just looks more professional and doing it regularly and often. But this is a low time thing. I can create, a, I can create something on Canva in like 10 minutes. Um, and so Especially every time- Especially if you've got templates and stuff already, you can- yeah. reuse, reuse them and have different ones. So they don't always look the same, yeah. but, um, we, we do that. And that's a, that's an easy, low dollar, low time investment thing to be able to do. And the key is, um, top of mind awareness. Mm-hmm. When, when hiring authorities hear from you often, when they see emails from you often, when they see LinkedIn posts from you often, mm-hmm. candidates and clients, both, you create top of mind awareness. Yeah, this is this is branding, and so what you want to do is realize that any given hiring authority or candidate doesn't need you always right now, but at some point in a ninety day period, at some point in a one year period, they will need someone like you. Who do they think of when that time occurs? Right. So, like for us, they're going to be like, "I need an SAP recruiter." So it's kind of like Kleenex or McDonald's or whatever brand Rolls Royce that you think of. Right. And so I need an SAP recruiter. So who do they think of that associates with that brand? Is there someone that is known as the SAP recruiter? So that's one thing. And then also top of mind awareness. So anyone that's like called them, sent them an email and that they've seen a LinkedIn post that week is probably who they're going to think about. Right. And that's top of mind awareness. That's what, that's what branding, that's what digital marketing can do for you. And you can automate these things, right? And yep, um, yep. yeah, so we do email blasts. That's easy to do. And the last thing I'll touch on, we do a video blog series. Cool. It's a video blog. We keep them to three minutes, mm-hmm. three minutes on a topic that we think our hiring authorities and our candidates would want to hear about. Mm-hmm. And we mix those up. Um, but um we use a company called Viral Marketing for that. Oh, yeah, I know them. You know Viral? So, yeah. we, I was one of the first people in the recruiting industry to use Viral Marketing. They got started with real estate agents, yeah. but they created a landing page for my video blogs. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually put all of my blogs in an audio format on iTunes. So, cool. I have a blog just like you do. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, and creating that content. But they also manage the email outbounds. They go to 30,000 people every time I do a video blog, they do the editing. All I got to do is help record it. And I help record it with a video camera Mm -hmm. and a microphone just like this. Mm -hmm. And I create content, right? How often are you, uh, do you put out videos, Jeremy? Once or twice a month. So my goal is every two weeks. Yes. Um, And I can see who opened the videos. I can see who watched them. They can do a reply and it can come to me. That's, creating top of mind awareness. It's doing some branding. It's being a thought leader. It's creating content. And on that one, I believe um, we pay maybe 500 a month for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they help create our, our landing page. They do the iTunes stuff. They do the editing of the video, which is not me. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they manage the email campaign so that I don't become a spammer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I get a good bang for the buck. That's not breaking the bank. And those are, I think it's good for people to just choose two or three things that you want to do yeah, that yeah. work on your branding or your imaging that's within your budget, that's within the time you can put into it. But people that do nothing in this area, mm. they're missing the boat. And I'll tell you why. We do get 10 to 15 companies that call us per year inbound that we didn't have to do anything for them to call us. The percentage that we turn into retained, 80%. Yes, because of the positioning. When we call a company that we're calling them, Mm -hmm. it's around 20% that we're able to convince them to go with a financially committed model. When they find you, there is a perception that that is the answer to our problem. This is who I need. And it changes the power dynamic and we we convert more of those to retain clients. 
Brilliant. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's powerful stuff. Thank you for really simplifying it because it's, uh, it's an area which is easily to get overwhelmed, confused, and you did a really great job with those, uh, those key four things. Um, Jeremy, do you know what? I think I'm going to have to have you back on another occasion because there's other things I wanted to talk about, like yeah. building a firm. You've got a rainmaker model going on with a team of five, uh, you know, high, desk, uh, high per desk average, you know, um, which uh, I'd love to love to explore. Um, so let's let's agree to do this again if you're up for I'd it. I'd love to do a part two because yeah. you know you gotta have a sequel when you feel like you left too much on the table. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Listen, before I let you go, one more thing I wanted to ask you is: I know that you you and you you're uh, a well-known speaker and trainer in the industry as well as running your own firm. And one of the topics that you know is close to your heart is grit, which is kind of, I mean, to me, it's synonymous with resilience. Uh, where does your grit come from? My grit comes from my early childhood, to be honest with you, Mark. Um, in the U.S., I don't mind that people know the who I am and where I come from, you know. Um, but I, I didn't have a silver spoon in my mouth. Um, I grew up with a single mom that was a school teacher. Uh, we were not, I, I felt like I was middle-class, but looking back on it, we were probably, um, pretty poor, uh, mm -hmm. Mark. And I, I always had, I was little for my age. I was little for my weight. So I had to, I had to be funny and run fast right? <laughs> and, and learn how to make friends even right. And learn how to make friends. Even, um, I was always under undersized and underaged. Um, I became very athletic later in life and, and competition helped teach me, you know, how to fight for everything you're going to get, not give up, get knocked down, get back up. Uh, grew up in Texas. So, you know, we, we have metaphors and analogies that we talk about. Like if you get bucked off the horse, get back on. Right. Well, I literally grew up on a ranch. Uh, I've literally been bucked off of actual horses. <laughs> and, um, and I grew up in the, you know, kind of in a rural area, you know, in Texas. Um, but your early childhood the friends that you have, um, you know, all these things make us who we are today. Um, I put myself through college. My mom wasn't going to be able to afford to, you know, put me to school. And I earned a partial athletic scholarship. I, I had to put all, all these other scholarships with it. And even then, I still had to put 50% on, uh, you know, loans. And I had to pay it all back myself. You know, um, I had to buy my own first car. I didn't have it easy. A lot of big billers that I know have similar stories. Mm. And I don't care if someone's story is harder than mine or not as hard as mine. What I will say is our early life helps to make us who we are. And how do you channel, you know, your inner toughness in this business is a big thing because yes, yes. bad things happen. And so let's say that you thought you had a $50,000 fee and next thing you know, they back out. They didn't start. I mean, you literally either invoice it or we're about to. That's demoralizing for some people. And it's like, how do you internalize that, right? Are you going to let it get you for an hour or two? Are you going to let it get you for two or three days? Are you going to let it get you for a week or two? Mm -hmm. If you can shorten that, you're going to have a better year. When you can bounce back and get back on the horse, you're going to have a better year. And even, even how you internalize a no. So in business development, if you get told no, 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 no. Are you hearing no, 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 no? I actually hear not right now. I've always right. heard not right now. Timing's not right. Not right now. And I've also heard, are you even the person that can even tell me no? If you're not right. a decision maker, it bounces off me like I got rain X on me. <laughs> and, um, so channeling your inner grit this is a good time to do that. We're in, we're in a COVID economy. It's time to uh, dust yourself off. You were talking about the pursuit of happiness. If you need to go watch that right now to get motivated, go watch it. But after you're done with that, come out, come out of the chute. Come out running. It's time. You got to make your own success. Luck has nothing to do with it. Um, get off your high horse. Get off your pity party. Um, just so you know, someone out there right now in your same market's killing it. Right. Is it going to be you or is it going to be someone else? Awesome. That's a great place to stop. Jeremy, um, listen, I, I will include like your full bio and links to your website in the show notes, which will be at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash podcast. But if people want to reach out to you, um, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah. So website, asaptalentservices.com. 
And my email is just my first name, Jeremy at asaptalentservices.com. Uh, I'm, I'm a pretty approachable person. Connect with me on LinkedIn, drop me a note and uh, try to be helpful to the industry because the more that we lift our whole industry up, the better it is for all of us. I agree 100%. That's part of why I'm, why I'm on this mission and doing this podcast. So thanks so much, Jeremy. I really enjoyed this one. Thanks, Mark. I do appreciate it. You guys have a great one. Take care. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really wanna help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.